Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of Popular History of Ireland, Book Eleven by Thomas Darcy McGee, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. The Insurrection of Seventeen Ninety Eight, the Wexford Insurrection, Part Two. The summer of seventeen ninety eight was, for an Irish summer, remarkably dry and warm. The heavy Atlantic rains, which at all seasons are poured out upon that soil, seemed suspended in favor of the insurgent multitudes amounting to thirty thousand or forty thousand at the highest, who, on the different hill summits, posted their night sentinels, and threw themselves down on turf and heather to snatch a short repose. The kindling of a beacon, the lowing of cattle, or the hurried arrival of scout or messenger, hardly interfered with slumbers which the fatigues of the day, and, unhappily also, the potations of the night rendered doubly deep. An early morning mass mustered all Catholics, unless the very depraved, to the chaplain's tent, for several of the officers and the chaplains were always supplied with tents, and then a hasty meal was snatched before the sun was fairly above the horizon, and the day's work commenced. The endurance exhibited by the rebels, their personal strength, swiftness, and agility, their tenacity of life, and the ease with which their worst wounds were healed, excited the astonishment of the surgeons and officers of the regular army. The truth is that the virtuous lives led by that peaceful peasantry before the outbreak enabled them to withstand privations and hardships under which the better-fed and better-clad Irish yeomen and English guardsmen would have sunk prostrate in a week. Several signs now marked the turning of the tide against the men of Wexford. Waterford did not rise after the Battle of Ross, while Munster, generally, was left to undecided councils, or held back in hopes of another French expedition. The first week of June had passed over, and neither northward nor westward was there any movement formidable enough to draw off from the devoted county the combined armies which were now directed against its camps. A gunboat fleet lined the coast from Banau Round to Wicklow, which soon after appeared off Wexford Bar, and forced an entrance into the harbour. A few days earlier General Needham marched from Dublin, and took up his position at Arklow, at the head of a force variously stated at fifteen hundred to two thousand men, composed of one hundred and twenty cavalry under Sir Watkin Wynne, two brigades of militia under Colonels Cope and Maxwell, and a brigade of English and Scotch fencibles under Colonel Skerritt. There were also at Arklow about three hundred of the Wexford and Wicklow mounted yeomanry, raised by Lord Wicklow, Lord Mount Norris, and other gentlemen of the neighbourhood. Early on the morning of the ninth of June the northern divisions of the rebels left Gorey in two columns, in order, if possible, to drive this force from Arklow. One body, proceeding by the coast road, hoped to turn the English position by way of the Strand, the other, taking the inner line of the Dublin road, was to assail the town at its upper or inland suburb. But General Needham had made the most of his two days' possession— Barricades were erected across the road, and at the entrance to the main street, the graveyard and bridge commanding the approach by the shore road were mounted with ordnance. The cavalry were posted where they could best operate, near the strand. The barrack wall was lined with a banquette or stage, from which the musketeers could pour their fire with the greatest advantage, and every other precaution taken to give the rebels a warm reception. The action commenced early in the afternoon, and lasted till eight in the evening, five or six hours. The inland column suffered most severely from the marksmen on the banquette, and the gallant Father Michael Murphy, whom his followers believed to be invulnerable, fell, leading them on to the charge for the third time. On the side of the sea, 
Esmond Kean was badly wounded in the arm, which he was subsequently obliged to have amputated, and though the fearless chamaliers drove the cavalry into and over the Avacoa, discipline and ordnance prevailed once again over numbers and courage. As night fell, the assailants retired slowly towards Cool Granny, carrying off nine carloads of their wounded, and leaving perhaps as many more on the field. Their loss was variously reported from seven hundred to one thousand, and even fifteen hundred. The opposite force returned less than one hundred killed, including Captain Knox, and about as many wounded. The repulse was even more than at Ross, dispiriting to the rebels, who, as a last resort, now decided to concentrate all their strength on the favorite position at Vinegar Hill. Against this encampment, therefore, the entire available force of regulars and militia within fifty miles of the spot were concentrated by orders of Lord Lake, the commander-in-chief. General Dundas from Wicklow was to join General Loftus at Carnew on the 18th. General Needham was to advance simultaneously to Gorey, General Sir Henry Johnson to unite at Old Ross with Sir James Stuff from Carlow, Sir Charles Asgill was to occupy Gore's Bridge and Boris, Sir John Moore was to land at Ballyhock Ferry, march to Folk's Mill, and unite with Johnson and Duff, to assail the rebel camp on Carrick Burn. These various movements, ordered on the 16th, were to be completed by the 20th, on which day, from their various new positions, the entire force, led by these six general officers, was to surround Vinegar Hill, and make a simultaneous action upon the last stronghold of the Wexford Rebellion. This elaborate plan failed of complete execution in two points. First, the camp on Carrickburn, instead of waiting the attack, sent down its fighting men to Fuchs Mill, where, in the afternoon of the 20th, they beat up Sir John Moore's quarters, and maintained from three o'clock till dark what that officer calls a pretty sharp action. Several times they were repulsed and again formed behind the ditches and renewed the conflict, but the arrival of two fresh regiments, under Lord Dalhousie, taught them that there was no further chance of victory. By this affair, however, though at a heavy cost, they had prevented the junction of all the troops, and not without satisfaction, they now followed the two Roches, the priest and the layman, to the original position of the Mountain of Forth, Sir John Moore, on his part, taking the same direction, until he halted within sight of the walls of Wexford. The other departure from Lord Lake's plan was on the side of General Needham, who was ordered to approach on the point of attack by the circuitous route of Ullart, but who did not come up in time to complete the investment of the hill. On the morning of the appointed day, about thirteen thousand royal troops were in movement against the twenty thousand rebels whom they intended to dislodge. Sir James Duff obtained possession of an eminence which commanded the lower line of the rebel encampment, and from this point a brisk cannonade was opened against the opposite force. At the same time the columns of Lake, Wilford, Dundas, and Johnson pushed up the southeastern, northern, and western sides of the eminence, partially covered by the fire of these guns, so advantageously placed. After an hour and a half's desperate fighting, the rebels broke and fled by the unguarded side of the hill. Their route was complete, and many were cut down by the cavalry as they pressed in dense masses on each other, over the level fields and out on the open highways. Still, this action was far from being one of the most fatal as to loss of life, fought in that county. The rebel dead were numbered at only four hundred, and the royalists killed and wounded at less than half that number. 
It was the last considerable action of the Wexford Rising, and all the consequences which followed being attributed arbitrarily to this cause, helped to invest it with a disproportionate importance. The only leader lost on the rebel side was Father Clinch of Enniscorthy, who encountered Lord Roden hand to hand in the retreat, but who, while engaged with his lordship whom he wounded, was shot down by a trooper. The disorganization, however, which followed on the dispersion was irreparable. One column had taken the road by Gorey to the mountains of Wicklow, another to Wexford, where they split into two parts, a portion crossing the Slaney into the seacoast parishes, and facing northward by the shore road, the other falling back on the three rocks encampment, where the Messrs. Roche held together a fragment of their former command. Wexford town, on the 22nd, was abandoned to Lord Lake, who established himself in the house of Governor Keogh, the owner being lodged in the common jail. Within the week, Bagenal Harvey, Father Philip Roche, and Kelly of Killane had surrendered in despair, while Messrs. Grogan and Colclaw, who had secreted themselves in a cave in the Great Salty Island, were discovered, and conducted to the same prison. Notwithstanding the capitulation agreed to by Lord Kingsborough, the execution and decapitation of all these gentlemen speedily followed, and their ghastly faces looked down for many a day from the iron spikes above the entrance of Wexford Courthouse. Mr. Esmond Kean, the popular hero of the district, as merciful as brave, was discovered some time subsequently paying a stealthy visit to his family. He was put to death on the spot, and his body, weighted with heavy stones, thrown into the harbour. A few mornings afterward the incoming tide deposited it close by the dwelling of his father-in-law, and the rites of Christian burial, so dear to all his race, were hurriedly rendered to the beloved remains. The insurrection in this county, while it abounded in instances of individual and general heroism, was stained also, on both sides, by many acts of diabolical cruelty. The aggressors, both in time and in crime, were the yeomanry and military. But the popular movement dragged wretches to the surface, who delighted in repaying torture with torture, and death with death. The butcheries of Dunlavin and Carnew were repaid by the massacres at Scullabogue and Wexford Bridge, in the former of which one hundred and ten, and the latter thirty-five or forty persons were put to death in cold blood, by the monsters who absented themselves from the battles of Ross and Vinegar Hill. The executions at Wexford Bridge would probably have been swelled to double the number, had not Father Corin, one of the priests of the town, rushing in between his Protestant neighbours and the ferocious Captain Dixon, and summoning all present to pray, invoked the Almighty to show them the same mercy they showed their prisoners. This awful supplication calmed even that savage rabble, and no further execution took place. Nearly forty years afterward, Captain Kellett of Clonard, ancestor of the Arctic discoverer, and others whom he had rescued from the very grasp of the executioner, followed to the grave that revered and devoted minister of mercy. It would be a profitless task to draw out a parallel of the crimes committed on both sides. Two facts only need be recorded that although from 1798 to 1800 not less than sixty-five places of Catholic worship were demolished or burned in Leinster, twenty-two of which were in Wexford County, only one Protestant church, that of Old Ross, was destroyed in retaliation, and that although towards men, especially men-in-arms, the rebels acted on the fierce mosaic maxim of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, no outrage upon women is laid to their charge, even by their most exasperated enemies." End of chapter 16, part 2. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.